of Islam podcast. Today we live in an era of globalization for good and bad. But back in the 9th century, Baghdad was at the center of a global trade empire stretching from Europe all the way to China. One of the best records of that time is a book called The Accounts of China and India, written by Abu Zaid al-Sarafi, which shows the great extent of this system and also the attitudes that the Muslim empire had to these far-off countries. That is our subject today, so please stay tuned. of maritime trade in the Indian Ocean was one of the golden ages of medieval commerce. It was parallel to and complementary to the famous Silk Road we've all heard of. In fact, when Chinese leader Xi Jinping launched his massive Belt and Road Initiative, this is what it was a reference to, one being the, the belt of Indian Ocean trade and the other being the road of the Silk Road, those two great arteries of trade from this great medieval period. Well, we're going to look at that today through one of the best uh, accounts we have, a book that was written at the height of this period. In fact, it's really two books in one. At the height of the Abbasid Caliphate, and we're talking the seven eight hundreds here, this was a massive maritime trade that stretched all the way from the east coast of Africa to Indonesia and China. And as we're going to see in this episode, the organization and regulation of this network was impressive by any standards in any day and time, but certainly by the standards of the time in what were the dark ages of Europe, this is truly amazing. So when we look at this, just like everything else, we have to compare it with what's going on in the rest of the world, what Europe was like at the time, which, of course, was a, a huge mess. Now, the main port for Indian Ocean trade was the city of Seraf, which is in modern-day Iran uh, and obviously on the, the Arabian Gulf. The author of the book we're going to be looking at was a man named Abu Zaid al-Sarafi, which, of course, means from Saraf, so he's named after the city. Now this was the big port where the ships would go out into the ocean. Of course, Basra was the main port on the Persian or Arabian Gulf serving Baghdad and Iraq. But from Saraf, the ships would go to Oman, and then they would make several stops on the way to and around India. But the end of the route was the great Chinese port of Khanfu which is the modern-day Guangzhou today, a city of 14 million people and the fifth-largest port in the world, a huge, huge industrial area. Well, Saraf was destroyed by an earthquake, and now very little remains of it. Kanfu would also be destroyed, and trade temporarily stopped, but obviously it bounced back big time to become such a great port that it is. But we're talking about a, a huge huge trade route there. Now, this ocean trade is one of the things that made the Islamic empire a global power of its time. Now, we tend to think of that empire as a land empire, of course, because we're talking about North Africa, the Middle East, but it was definitely an international maritime power as well, especially in the East. And by the way, it was that trade that led to the greatest spread of Islam. We talk about the Arab conquest, but the largest Muslim populations in the world today are places that were reached by Muslim merchants, not military conquerors. So this trade continued to be important even after the empire stopped expanding militarily. And as we've talked about in previous episodes, it was actually contracting. They were losing territory uh, on, on all sides. But the spread of Islam as a culture and a religion continued to go on. So 
The book we're going to be looking at today, The Accounts of India and China, is a little bit of an unusual book in that it comes in two parts, and the first part was written around the year 850 by an unknown author, and it sounds like he was unknown even at, at the time to the people who were reading it. He was commissioned to write, and again, we don't know by whom, but he was commissioned to write this account of basically all the places along the Indian Ocean trade. Now, this first part of the book is incomplete. And in fact, the first sentence that we have is, like a sail. So it starts off in the middle of a description of something, and actually in the middle of a sentence. The second part of the book, this is the part that was written by Abu Zayd al-Sarafi. He probably wrote between 910 and 920 A.D., and he was specifically charged to check out the first part of the book and see if it was correct, to add anything to it, to change anything to it, to verify it. And this is how we know by, by the 900s, um, they didn't know who had written this book. He certainly didn't know who had uh, written this book. And so everything he is writing is basically to check, to update and clarify the reports from the first book 50 years earlier. Now, this is significant because things in China had changed drastically in those 50 years. The once mighty Tang Dynasty, which had ruled for 300 years as one of the most powerful dynasties in Chinese history, it collapsed massively in the year 907 due to the Hung Chao Rebellion, which I mean, absolutely devastated the, the country. And specifically, for the Arab merchants... From their perspective, uh, Hung Chao sacked the city of Kanfu, which of course was their main trading port. And he's said here in this account to have killed 200,000 foreigners, a large portion of those being Arab merchants. Now, that's pretty bad, but that was just a small portion of the total number of people he killed, you know, most of them Chinese. And al-Sarafi refers to China at this point as being totally devastated. He talks about the former system being completely gone, the trade relations stopped, and so forth. Now, we know that China bounced back from this. And in fact, China would bounce back from a, a lot of very traumatic wars over its history. But he's writing about it as if it's, if, as if it's gone. The infrastructure is, is all gone. So what Asarafi is writing about, even part two of this book, 50 years later, is how things were in the, in the golden age um, when the first book was written. So we have to sort of bear that in mind. So even he is talking with this sort of view of nostalgia of the, of the good old days of how, you know, what a great place China was to go. Okay, so uh, unlike Ibn Battuta, the famous traveler we discussed uh, several episodes ago who lived in the 1300s and actually went to all these places, uh, Asarafi didn't go to China. He didn't go to India. He is a collector of reports from other people, and this is, you know, pretty normal of the way things are written. I mean, it's like today, the way scholars write books on reports from other people. Now, some of the things we're going to hear from al-Sarafi may sound a bit outlandish, but he assures us that he has tried to stick to the facts. He says, quote, I have avoided relating any of the sort of accounts in which sailors exercise their powers of invention, but whose credibility would not stand up to the scrutiny in other men's minds, end quote. So, Sounds like sailors told tall tales even back then, and he was aware of that. Well, what do we find in this book? So much of what Asarafi relates is the kind of thing you'll find in you know any kind of documentary like on the National Geographic Channel or something like that. There's a lot of talk about exotic animals and plants, uh, the unusual customs of the local people and so forth. But in all of this, there's really sort of a merchant's perspective on this. So yeah, he does talk about these really unusual animals and plants. And you know, much of what he reports turns out to be exaggerated or inaccurate is always what happens in these travel stories. 
But the emphasis is always on the economic value of the stuff they produce, how much it's worth. So, for example, take one of his many examples. Uh, when he talks about India, the thing that impresses him the most is the rhinoceros. And the horns of the rhinoceros, the way he describes them, is said to be black, except that they have a white marking on them. And these white markings bears the shapes of all kinds of things, from people to birds to fish and so forth. And he talks about the rhino being so powerful that elephants run away from it. And he also mentions, the writer of the first book, he says that the meat is halal for Muslims to eat, and he notes that uh, he has eaten it as well. Well, if it tasted good, he didn't say anything about that, but he knows he has, he has eaten uh, rhino meat. But then, of course, he's going to go on and talk about uh, you know, how valuable this is, how valuable this rhino horn is. Now, of course, nowadays, that is a big taboo. Uh, and you shouldn't be involved in that, but I mean, back then uh, it seemed like there was limitless wildlife. So when we take China, for example, of course China was famous for silk, which was a great luxury item in the Middle East, in Europe, and of course it was outrageously expensive there. So if you had it, I mean, it really made you look like you were an important person. But when they're writing about silk in China, of course, their emphasis is how cheap it is and how common it is in China. And yet it's of much higher quality than the stuff you can get back home. So, for example, uh, Sarafi relates uh, a story. And, of course, all his stories are secondhand. He didn't do this himself. But he relates a story, and when he talks about um, a traveler who met a Chinese official wearing a very thin silk garment. And he said this garment was so thin, in fact, that he could see a mole on the person's chest. And he, he points this out to the official, you know, wow, your garment is so thin, I can even see through it. And the guy reveals that he is, in fact, wearing five silk layers, five of these garments, one on top of another, and still, like, you can see right through it. And, of course, we have to take this with a grain of salt, like all of these stories. But the point is, the traveler was definitely impressed with how much lighter and finer the Chinese silk was than the stuff you would pay a fortune for in, say, Baghdad, and that in China it's so cheap. I mean, it's everywhere. Uh, now, by contrast, cotton, which is, I mean, of course, the staple of Egypt— and is common in the Middle East, was highly prized in China. So it was worth a lot to have a, a cotton garment. And uh, Ibn Battuta, in his description, talks about how uh, basically a cotton garment in China is worth what a silk garment in, in the Middle East is worth. And in both cases, he means a huge amount of money. So it's, it's an interesting description, but there's a very obvious message here. You know, what a great business you can have by trading Egyptian cotton for Chinese silk, right? Fill up a boat full of our cheap stuff and take it over there and bring back a boat of their stuff, you know. And that is the message that you get through all of this stuff. <clears throat> Just by the way, one of the things he spends a lot of time on is talking about ambergris, which is a, it's a waxy substance <clears throat> and it's actually produced in the digestive system of a whale and it was highly valued as a perfume in the Middle Ages. Now, El-Sarafi, like the people of his day, uh, he assumed that this substance grew in the sea and the whales swallowed it and spit it out, but it actually grows inside of them. But anyway, the image was still the same. So he would talk about, to his readers who were used to going to the spice markets and you know buying a tiny amount of this stuff for a lot of money he describes chunks of ambergris floating in the sea, and some of them as you know as big as a bull. He says, "I mean, huge, huge chunks." So it's kind of like you know the rumors that circulated during the California Gold Rush. You know, back east, people will be talking about nuggets of gold as big as your head, and and so on. But it's the same idea. You know, what a what a great place, what a great uh, frontier for trading and doing business. So, like, for example, when he's talking about Indian leopards, 
Now they're of course very interesting for their hunting habits and you know they stay up in trees and they have this red fur which is different than the leopards that they're used to. But then we get the inevitable comment about how much one of these skins is worth. I mean it's worth a ton of money uh, back there. And so to get the point across about you know how abundant these valuable things are in these exotic lands, he talks about you would come across people wearing entire leopards on them. I mean, not just the skin, the whole thing. They're wearing the whole thing, which of course would be worth a fortune in Baghdad. And you talk about gemstones being cast away as trash. So hardly anybody back in Baghdad would read this without thinking to themselves, man, you know, if I went on a boat and went out to India, boy, I think of all the money I could make, which is the idea. And, and these things, eventually, these sailors' tales multiply, and this is how we get things like the story of Sinbad the sailor who you know, encounters all kinds of outrageous stuff. But those are being derived from you know some supposedly true stories that are told here. Now, just having said all of that, I'm, I'm not trying to accuse al-Sarafi of advertising or something like that. Um, he seems to have genuinely believed everything he was saying. And of course, he was one of the guys back home hearing all these tales. But his accounts show how things felt back in the 800s, 900s. The Abbasid economy was booming like nothing anyone had ever seen before. A huge part of that was the Indian Ocean trade, and there's the same kind of stories coming from the Silk Road. And so it was a symbol of luxury and power that you could find every product imaginable in the markets of Baghdad or Basra, you know, silk from China, spices from India, rhino horn, and, and so on. This was a sign of the wealth of that empire that they could go out to places like China and Indonesia and bring back all this stuff and you could have it right here in Baghdad. So, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, imagine today a bunch of Wall Street guys hanging around, you know, drinking their lattes and, you know, talking about all the, the great stuff they get and all the great products that they can buy, you know, with their money. And so what uh, Al-Sarafi is doing is he's really kind of exciting that. You know, there's so much that you see in the markets of Baghdad. Well, there's even more pickings out there for the uh, the adventurous merchant. And you know, that's the way that's the way it was for quite a while. These adventurous merchants would take Islam to all over Africa and Asia. Okay, so natural history is just a part of this. Uh, most of what As-Sarafi describes in his book, which of course is named Accounts of China and India, so those are the places he's going to be talking about, it's the structure of some very advanced societies. Uh, Tang Dynasty China is at least a rival to the Abbasid Caliphate in just about every regard. Scientific, literary, economic, military, and political. And so Asarafi wants to talk about that country at its height. He doesn't want to talk about the sad shape it's in when he's writing. Uh, he wants to talk about when things were good. So what we get here is a picture of a very ordered, regulated society, one that runs like clockwork. I mean, it's just so efficient and impressive. I mean, to, to be honest, even in, in our 21st century society, I mean, we wish our governments ran as smoothly as he says China did back then, which, again, I would take that a little bit uh, lightly. Okay, so he talks about leaders who are marvels of efficiency, and they seem to be incredibly honest, especially in business dealings and especially with Arab merchants. So they may have some fairly crazy religious ideas and they may kill some people in particularly brutal ways for breaking silly rules about some pagan statue. 
But the message is, if you're carrying a ship full of high-value goods, I mean, you can be sure every last piece of your merchandise is going to be guaranteed by the Emperor of China himself. It's again talking about how great this trade is. And he gives many examples of that. So in one instance, he talks about anytime a foreign merchant wants to travel across China, they are given two documents. And of course, remember, everything has to be handwritten back then. One is from the ruler and one is from the chief eunuch for finance, which every level of government has. I guess I think this is apparently a way to uh, keep the guy honest. Uh, anyway, the, the first one is a permit to travel for the merchant in their party, which guarantees that you know if anyone lays a finger on them, then the full force of the government is going to come after you. And the second one, the one from the eunuch, is a listing of all the goods and money that these people are carrying. Now, they need this because there are guard posts all over the place, you know, all along the route of travel. And every time you pass one of these guard posts, they're going to inventory your stuff and make sure you have everything it says. And if even one coin is missing, of course, the ruler guarantees to reimburse it for you, and that means the police will go out and hunt down the thief. And as you might expect, the police in these stories are described as being amazingly efficient. I mean, they will find that lost coin and the person who stole it. So even if your cargo, let's say, is lost due to a natural disaster, well, the ruler, of course, is going to reimburse that. And every story in the book talks about them uh, reimbursing your losses at a way better price than you would get in the market. So, I mean, this is just, a, it's like a no-risk um, adventure. You, you know, you might as well do it. So, what happens to the thief in this case? Well, of course, I mean, the police are so efficient, they are definitely going to catch that thief and take him into custody. Um, and they can be very ruthless, but of course, they're also very just. So, there's an investigation, and if it is found that the thief is poor, and needed to steal to survive, well, you can guess who is going to pay them what they need. Uh, of course, the ruler is going to pay them and make sure they are taken care of. Now, if they found that they actually have a lot of money and they're just stealing because they're greedy, well, then they are beaten with sticks, uh, maybe to the point of death. And this seems to be the very common way of dealing with things, beating people with wooden sticks. The same thing happens to someone who owes a debt because... Uh, as you might expect in these descriptions, debts in China are very, very carefully uh, managed. You have to go fill out a, an IOU form, which is you know notarized and everything. But if you don't pay your debt, what happens? Well, of course, there's an investigation. And if you are found to legitimately not be able to pay it back, well, in steps the ruler, makes everybody happy, pays off your debt, and you don't have to worry about it. Similarly, if there's a bad harvest or something or a shortage in the markets, then the ruler releases uh, foods and goods from his personal storage and either at really great prices or for free. Okay, now if it's find out that you do have the money to pay the debt and you just didn't do it, well, then you're going to be in trouble. Again, out come the sticks or some other way of killing you which are all described as being very brutal. Now, to us, this seems you know, extreme, you know, beating the people to death for debt. Um, but back in the, in the times that we're talking about, I mean, you're talking you know, not long after Attila the Hun in the Dark Ages in Europe. I mean, this is you know, extremely just, extremely fair, and extremely impartial, and of course, very efficient. The people reading this account are less interested in the well-being of Chinese peasants than they are in the fact that uh, you can go there as a merchant and you don't have to worry about anything. Well, you may ask, where does the ruler get all this money and goods uh, to be giving out to everyone? Well, of course, he gets them from taxes, but only if it's a good year. So, 
if there wasn't an abundance in the harvest, then you don't pay taxes. If you didn't harvest more than you need, then you don't pay taxes. So you definitely get the picture here. It just sounds absolutely wonderful. But of all these accounts, and there are many, many, uh, probably the greatest example of how leadership works in China is this uh, story of the Dara, which is a cord that is stretched across the highway, the public highway where anybody can find it. And this thing is kind of like the cord that you pull on a bus when you want the bus to stop, you know that? So this cord, when you pulled on it, it was connected to a bell that was right above the ruler's head. So like right over the king's head is this bell, and it's tied to this very tight cord and anybody pulls on that cord and this thing is going to ring. And so this is like a hotline to the king. And this was a way to launch a grievance. So any citizen who has a complaint, they pull on this thing and of course the king is going to spring right into action and check it out. Now, it's a very serious matter to do this. I mean, you don't just go ringing this thing every day when you're not um, feeling you know, happy with someone. So what would happen is if somebody actually rang this bell, they would be taken into custody. And they would be taken 10 days journey away. I mean, that's pretty far away. And they would be locked up for two months. Now, this was to give you time to cool off and to really think about it. You know, are you sure you want to go through with this? Were you just mad and you pulled the cord or something? So you, you, think, you think it through, and after two months, if you're sure, no, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that I was cheated and I'm not going to back down. So then they would come and talk to you and tell you that the ruler would investigate your case, but if he was found that it was without merit, that you didn't have a good claim, you would be killed. As you would imagine, and that's kind of the penalty for most things here. So you were given the chance to retract your claim at that point to say, yeah, you know, I don't think I'll push this. Now, if you did that, you don't, you don't just get off scot-free because, I mean, you just you still rang the bell and disturbed the ruler and, you know, took up two months in our luxury prison. So if you did that, if you retracted your claim, you got beaten 50 times with a wooden stick and then you would be banished. Now, in other places in the book, it says that less than that would actually kill you. But in this case, apparently it doesn't. So maybe they don't beat you the same way. So anyway, how did this work in practice? Well, El Sarafi, he records the story of a Persian merchant who was cheated in a business deal. And he was so mad that he went and rang the bell. Now, remember, he is a foreigner in this country. And so he went through the whole thing. He you know, was taken into custody. He would not relent on his claim. And he was finally taken in the presence of the ruler. Uh, they did the investigation. And lo and behold, his case was found to be valid. All his losses were reimbursed. And the, the person who cheated him was punished. Okay, so it's shown that th this is very, very efficient and very impartial. Even if you're a foreigner, I mean, you will get the, the truth. Okay, and I mean, there are just many, many stories. He talks about how uh, judges are chosen in China and all the steps they go through to make sure they're impartial and all of that. So the question is, uh, why describe things this way? Why do you make uh, China and India sound so great? Well, for the original book, it's pretty clear. They want to convey the message that, I mean, these are great places to trade. You know, if you were thinking about investing in long-distance trade or, um, you know, buying a, a ship and taking your wares to sea, don't worry about it. You can, you can be sure that you'll be safe. It's kind of like one of those TV commercials, right? You know, what are you waiting for? Pick up the phone today and call. Yeah, don't, don't worry. But this is definitely not the case when El Sarafi is writing. I mean, he's talking about how great it was to do trade in China, but then he also said you can't go there now. I mean, don't even think about going to Kung Fu now because it's a big mess. So his task was to verify the stuff in the first book. 
And his conclusion is basically, wait, it, you know, it's even better than what they said. He said, yeah, it was that good, but there's even more stuff. And so he's really saying, yeah, you know, this place was wonderful. So, you know, why are you doing this? If you are representing the greatest empire on earth, uh, why are you saying things are really great someplace else? Well, one explanation, of course, is nostalgia. Right? Things were always great in the past. You know, you listen to your grandfather talk about the Depression. You know, things were miserable and we loved it. It was so great. Um, and so he's talking to a bunch of old salts, sailors who used to ply the China trade route and don't anymore because they can't. So naturally, they're going to talk about how, how great things were. And, of course, if you're a little bit disgruntled with the bureaucracy in your own country, you talk about, oh, my goodness, I remember when I was in China, you just had to pull this cord and the king would come running and, you know, go after anybody you wanted. And, you know, it makes it sound really great. Um, but it's also clear here when we look at this that the motive of this book, and this is true of really all the travel accounts we see, it's not to put down these foreign people. You know, basically, they're pagans. Uh, it's not to talk about how you know evil this pagan society is and how much better we are than them and how much more civilized we are. Um, now, there are some points where he does talk about religious customs or personal customs, uh, particularly sexual and gender customs, and you know he's going to be uh, pretty critical of those and. Uh, he's going to actually say at some point, thank God we're not like them. But those are really exceptions. For the most part, he's making them look pretty good. And like everything else that we've seen, uh, a Sarafi is not commissioned, and nor would his work have survived if it was going against the views of the Abbasid leadership. I mean, they hired him to check this out. And obviously they published his conclusions. So we can assume... Um, that this is basically the, what his Abbasid sponsors thought as well. So it, it's important that this is not an us versus them, jihadist type narrative. You know, we're good, they're evil. But this is really praising globalization, you know, an internationalist vision of, you know, spreading spreading our empire, not just the missionary efforts. I mean, we know about the Dar al-Islam and, and spreading... Um, the religion, but just the idea of, of this globalized presence. You know, today we have this debate between those who are advocates of you know an internationalist vision and those who are isolationists. Well, this is very much on the the internationalist side, um, and I think this just reflects the way that Baghdad saw itself. It was like the New York or the London of its day, and they wanted to stress that. They wanted to stress. Um, the importance of that, and really downplay the fact that okay, yeah, there, yeah, there are a bunch of pagans out there, and they do some weird stuff. But you know, the idea of us spreading, spreading our roots as far as we can is good, and I think that's why Asarafi writes the way he does. He's talking about what China was like in the good old days when it's now collapsed because he wants to advocate the basic idea of international trade and contact and globalization. So even if this one country is in bad shape, the general principle is still really good. Well, if China and India are impressive places, and they are, uh, it is important to set the global context. And both Asarafi and his predecessor are careful to do that. I mean, you have to know who your audience is. So we'll take one of his quotes here. Uh, in discussing the kingdoms of the world, the author notes, quote, the Indians and the Chinese are all of the opinion that, of the world's kings, four are to be counted as great. End quote. Now, you're probably not going to be surprised who is number one. Quote, they consider the first of these four to be the king of the Arabs. It is a unanimous opinion among them, about which there is no disagreement, that of the four kings, 
He is the mightiest, the richest in possessions, the most fine in appearance, and that he is the king of the great religion to which nothing is superior, end quote. Okay, so we, we don't know who the writer of the first part of the book was, and so we can't speak to their exact motivations, but this is a pretty common theme that we see throughout. Uh, even when Ibn Battuta is writing in the 1300s and he lists the great kings of the world, the king of Morocco, which is his king, that's who he's working for at the time, is listed as being the greatest, which, you know, by the time he's writing in the 1300s, that's really not a very objective opinion. But, of course, that's, that's what you're going to say. So they're making it very clear. I mean, being, you know, everybody, everybody in China and India, every single person agrees that the king of Arabs is number one. Even, even the emperor of China himself says that. So As-Sarafi relates a story about a traveler who received an audience with the emperor of China, who was just very interested in hearing about how things were um, back home. And he told him, meaning the emperor of China told him that the king of Iraq was the greatest and was known in China as, quote, the king of kings. And then the emperor of China said that he was second, and he's known as the king of his people. Okay. Uh, the ruler of Turks was next, according to him, who was the king of beasts. And by the beast, they're referring to the Turks. And the ruler of India, number four, is known as the king of elephants, or the king of wisdom. And the last one is the Byzantine emperor. Now, he is, uh, oddly enough, known as the king of men, but this refers to the fact that the men of the Byzantine Empire were the most handsome. So, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of power and might and wisdom, well, you got the best-looking guys, so, I mean, that's okay. But, I mean, you get the idea. Now, how much you can actually believe that the emperor of China, who is, you know, of course, the king of heaven, believes himself to be is sitting there saying, oh, no, the the best king is the, the king of Iraq. He's better than me. He's the king of me, actually. He's the king of all of us kings. Eh. Um, again, take it with a grain of salt, uh, but it's certainly uh, what El-Sarafi had to say, and, you know, people bought this. Okay. So even when he's talking about East Africa, he's talking about the Zanj, which is a general term for sub-Saharan Africans, and he describes their great wealth and exotic customs and, and so forth. Uh, he says, quote, They feel great awe in their hearts for the Arabs. If they catch sight of an Arab, they bow before him and say, This man is from the kingdom in which the date tree grows. This is because of the prestige that dates enjoy, both in their lands and their hearts. End quote. Okay. So now it's about dates. I mean, really, that's that's the thing they're taking away. You're from the land of the dates, so you're really great. That seems a little bit odd, um, but the effect is still the same. I mean, so in this country, if they see an Arab, they, they kneel down on the ground before him. Um, you know, again, how accurate is that? I don't know, but it's something you could say. I mean, Baghdad was a, you know powerful enough in that day that you could say that, and everybody would be, oh, yes, yes, they do. Okay. Now, in reality, as we've talked about, by this time, the 900s, mid-900s, the Abbasid Caliphate had started to weaken. And, you know, much of what he's referring to as the king of the Arabs um, had, they had lost Egypt, they had lost most of North Africa, they had basically lost effective control of Persia, um, but it, they still have a, a significant amount of power. And as we know, the, the king of the, quote, Arabs was largely throughout most of this time being dominated by actual Turkish militaries. Okay, so... Uh, you know, their power is weakened, so think if there would be any time that the emperor of China is bowing before the Abbasid Caliph, you know, it's probably about 750 AD, not at this time. But anyway, this is, this is part of the message. And of course, um, it's even probably more hard to believe that all of these people acknowledge Islam as the best religion 
but don't practice it. But again, this is what his audience expects to hear. But it's significant when we look at this that the term that is used here throughout is the, quote, king of the Arabs. Uh, it's not the caliph or commander of the faithful or something like that. The writer is definitely using that Arab identity that we discussed in the last few episodes, and he's exalting it. Um, whether that actually would have been what the emperor of China would have used um, is questionable. But you know, we talked about the fact that the idea of an Arab identity had only recently come into existence, and some people were trying to push this thing. And so here we have the fact that the, quote, king of the Arabs is being acknowledged. Even every single person in China acknowledges him as the most important ruler. So that means this is not only the greatest identity in the world, but is the one that the caliphate is known by. Okay, and so that's, that's significant here. Okay, and the Arabic that is used in that, that quote that I read literally says, quote, he is the king of the religion of Islam. The king of the Arabs is the king of the religion of Islam. I mean, that is taking the superiority of the Arabs to the, the maximum extent. Essentially, the Arabs own Islam. Okay. Now, that's not the purpose of this book. This is not a propaganda book. Uh, it, it, it's not like uh, when we were um, reading Ibn Qutayba's Excellence of the Arabs, which is just beating this idea over and over again. I mean, this is a travel account, and mostly what he's talking about is how great India and China are. But this is to show you how far the idea of the superiority of the Arabs has penetrated Islamic culture. Okay, so anyway, um, continuing along, after we've established the fact that, okay, everybody knows that the, the king of the Arabs is the best, okay, who's next? So it says, quote, the king of China counts himself next in importance after the king of the Arabs. Then comes the Byzantine king and finally Balhara, the king of the Indians who pierce their ears, end quote. So like the Byzantine Empire gets like five words. Uh, the king of China is described in detail later. Uh, but the kings of India become a more complicated manner. I mean, who is this Balhara he's talking about? So we don't know exactly when this text was written, and that's significant because when we narrow it down to what's possible, we're talking sometime in the late 800s, India was involved in what was called the tripartite struggle, obviously three kingdoms fighting it out, somewhat like the three kingdoms period in China. Now, most of India is going to end up being conquered by Muslims in the 11th to the 13th centuries. Um, but at this point in time, uh, the kingdoms of India had successfully held off the Muslim armies who had made I mean, several attempts to conquer it. They would have conquered India before if they could, but they had successfully stopped them. So amongst the three warring kingdoms in India, there's this one that this book calls the Jurs, which we know as the, the Gurjara kingdom, which controlled most of northern India. Now, the significant thing is that put them right in the path of the various Muslim invasions over the years. And so they had done most of the fighting, which had stopped the Muslims from conquering India. So therefore, they get a pretty negative painting in this Muslim book. So the king of the Jurs is said to be, quote, the most hostile to the Arabs. But he acknowledges the king of the Arabs as the greatest of rulers, end quote. So again, you mean take this as you like, but he makes a point that he's the most hostile against Islam, but still, he says, you know, they're the best. Okay, now the one he mentions as being the greatest of, the, of all the kings of India, there's the three main kingdoms, but there's many, many smaller ones, Balhara, uh, that's not a name, but it's like a title, just like king or shah or emperor. Uh, the, uh, the Balhara is the ruler of the Rashtrakuta kingdom. And again, I don't study India, so I don't know how to pronounce these things correctly. I'm sure that was not correct. Uh, but they controlled most of western India. 
that kingdom was noted for religious tolerance, and the rulers seemed to have patronized Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain temples, although not Muslim, of course, because that's you know exclusive. You can't mix Muslim and, and Buddhist or Hindu, but you can mix the others. Now, this aligns with what the author says about this kingdom being the most friendly to Islam. And a major portion of this is because they are not really in the path of the Muslim attacks on land. Okay, so, I mean, they're controlling the the southern coast of India, which is where the big uh, trading ports are. This is, we're talking about Mumbai, Goa, that area today, of course. And so, in this case, he's going to be the, the most friendly towards Islam because he's not the one fighting against them. And so... Uh, when the writer describes this, he talks about this king being acknowledged by all the others as superior. Now, that may or may not have been the reality. Um, he He's saying this, of course, because they are the most friendly to them. They have the best relations to, with them. And so he's going to say that everyone acknowledges them as the best, just as we're supposed to believe that the, you know, the emperor of China says that the the Abbasid Khalif is better than he is. So he may be just doing that sort of um, propaganda. But there may have been something to it because during the course of this tripartite struggle, um, the balance of power between these three kingdoms went up and down. And so at any given time, one kingdom would hold sway over another. So at some points, uh, the Rashtrakuta did at times hold the upper hand and receive tribute from the others. At other times, they were the ones giving the tribute. So he, he may, because we don't know the exact time this was written, he may be describing what was temporarily true, or he may be just, um, you know, trying to give the best compliments to the one who was on the, the best terms with our ruler. Okay, so of the three kingdoms, the last one is the Pala, which ruled northwestern India, and, you know, basically what is today Bangladesh. Now, this seems to be uh, what the, the writer refers to as Ruhma. We're not exactly sure. Um, but it's interesting, he notes, that this king was not on the same level as the others. He was on a lower level, which is probably a reference to his lineage. Because the writer also says that this king had the largest army of all of them, which he says had over 50,000 war elephants. I mean, war elephants are pretty big, and they uh, are very logistically intense to to maintain them. So 50,000 war, I mean, that's like 50,000 tanks. This is pretty huge. Um, now, that's probably an exaggeration. Just about every troop number in classical texts is an exaggeration. But he's trying to get the point across. I mean, he's got the biggest army. So it's interesting he's saying that, I mean, this guy has the, the most powerful army and the most powerful navy, okay, but he's on a lower level than the rest of the guys. So that seems to be a reference to lineage being important because I would think if, you know, if, if I've got the most power, uh, I'm going to make myself um, on the highest level. But anyway, that was the situation in India as he reports it. Okay, well, this sounds great so far. But is everything positive in these accounts? We've only heard great things. Well, no. I mean, they can't be. I mean, there, there has to be uh, some reason why we we are superior in our culture. So the original author notes that, quote, the Chinese are unhygienic. And he mentions in two places, two separate accounts, that they do not use water to to wash their anus after they defecate, but instead they use paper. And in one place, this is sufficient to say that they are unhygienic. Why? That's the reason. Okay. So we get the old uh, bidet versus toilet paper debate, uh, Europe versus America. Okay. And, you know, all Americans out there who wonder why when you go to a, a, a hotel in the Middle East or in Europe, there's this toilet next to the toilet 
you know, there's this thing with kind of like a hybrid toilet sink. So anyway, this debate comes again. Now, of course, today American culture has spread so far that, I mean, you can find toilet paper in places where you wouldn't have before. But it's one of these things, right? Like, you know, the way we switch switch our fork between hands. Not everything we do is actually the best. So um, what he's saying and, you know, what probably most, most doctors back up um, – the using of the toilet paper is less hygienic. But that is something, obviously, that is enough to set them apart, meaning when, when Arabs read this, they're like, oh, my gosh, they use paper? Wow, that's, uh, that's gross. Now, on, on another note, however, um, he talks about how the uh, Chinese urinate standing up. And they talk about the health value, why this is actually better for your health and it prevents kidney stones and all this, which I doubt is true. But it's significant because this indicates that the readers, both the uh, the male and female readers who are reading this account, um, that would not be the way that they did it. So anyway. But anyway, you know, we might find this a little bit surprising because we have always, you know, normally you consider the Chinese to be an extremely uh, cleanliness-focused culture. Um, and it may be that the author is just fixing on a, a few things that were unusual to him. But I think what this also uh, represents is that uh, Muslim culture was very, very hygienic. I mean, this is a culture, we're talking in the Middle Ages where people washed five times a day. So China may, by contrast, have seemed to be uh, even less hygienic. And India is said to be even less healthy than China. And the evidence of this is that you see a lot more crippled and blind or sick people. And so there's sort of a competition here, but we have to bear in mind that He's not even talking about Europe at this time, which compared to all of these places would have been so far off the bottom of the charts in, in terms of hygiene that you, you couldn't even compare them. Okay. So anyway, that's just you know one of the negative things he points out. Uh, when he talks about executions in China, there, it's done in a very barbaric sort of way, and it's sort of hard to imagine when you read it. But basically, what they would do is they would tie the person into these impossible positions that, like, so their limbs would pop out and they would die this horrible death. Uh, and so it's made to sound a very brutal. Now, according to this account. China has a fair amount of cannibalism. And in fact, the fate of criminals after being punished and killed is to be eaten. And in fact, Asarafi uh, notes that anyone who dies by the sword is eaten. And at one point he says um, <clears throat> that when they defeated another group in battle, they would eat all of them for, quote, cannibalism being permissible for them according to their legal code, they trade in human flesh in their markets, end quote. Um, now, he doesn't exactly condemn this outright, but things do tend to go a bit too far. Okay, so he describes how after the, the rebellion against the, the Tang dynasty and the political collapse, he talks about how they killed thousands of people, how they were eating people, and this, this was bad, and so forth. But then he gets to a point where he says that not only that, but they started treating the Arab merchants unfairly. Um, they would, would cheat them and in some, some uh, cases steal their goods. And then Al-Sarafi notes, because of that, God removed his protection from China and they suffered this horrible disaster that ruined their country. So you see, eating people, yeah, that was naughty. Um, and they were doing the wrong religion. Yeah, that was bad. But once they started cheating the Arab merchants, God got really mad at them and punished the whole country. Now, that sounds a bit strange to us, but it reflects the attitude of this book. It's really focused on us. So he's reporting the fact that, oh, China is wonderful. They have the best artists anywhere. It's, it's so great. Um, but they're pagans and they're eating people, but, you know, it's okay. It's when it starts to affect us. When it starts to affect God's people, that's when God gets mad. And, of course, it's a very self-focused type of thing. So, anyway, as far as religion goes, however, 
uh, China is described outright as not having any. Um, they don't have any um, religious heritage, uh, according to him. But the Indians, they were into some very extreme practices. And in many of these we see today. I mean, you can see these on documentaries, people who do extreme physical things as a matter of faith. Uh, for instance, he describes uh, one person who stood out in the sun and would stand in the sun literally until his eyes melted and his flesh melted. And the traveler who describes this says he saw this one person out there and he came back to the same spot 16 years later and the same guy was still standing in the same spot with his eyes uh, melted out. And so this is, again, something they, they see as strange, you know, that they're doing this. Okay. Uh, now, the Indians, because of their belief in reincarnation, they were inclined to kill themselves on funeral pyres in order to move their soul to the next body. Now, in all the descriptions, this is, this is the main way of um, disposing of dead people is by burning. Now, of course, if it's an enemy, they eat them. But if it's, you know, someone you like, they are burned. And, of course, we know this is the most hygienic way. This is for public health. But what's interesting is in many cases, people who are not dead choose to go along with them. So in some cases, important people in China, all their servants would choose to go on the funeral pyre with them, and especially concubines. Um, they would all go, I and mean, some of them were, were young girls who still had a lot of years in front of them, but when the master died, they would jump into the fire with them. Now, Al-Sarafi notes that they did this voluntarily. He says if they didn't want to, they didn't have to do it. Uh, you kind of wonder what kind of pressure there was on them. I mean, whether this was a completely, um, you know, no-pressure decision or not, I don't know. But th this would happen quite a bit. But here, what he's talking about when he's describing the Indians and their belief in reincarnation, he's talking about someone who was, you know, not doing this in order to commemorate someone else who died, but is doing it in order to, you know, move on to their next life, to get the soul into the next body. Now, just like everything else, of course, it's very orderly in this society. So in order to do this, you had to get permission. You had to go to the ruler and get permission to kill yourself. And he would say, okay, yes, you can, because it's a religious thing and it's honorable. And so what would happen is the person would run around the markets celebrating and people would crash cymbals and cheer because you know this was this great religious thing they were doing and they would stoke up the fire get it going really hot and he describes one guy doing this that someone uh, had seen and he poured burning tar on his head so his head was on fire as he's running around the markets and everyone's cheering him on and then he cut open his stomach pulled out his organs uh, actually cut up his own liver and started eating his own liver before throwing himself onto the fire. Now, this is one point where al-Sarafi ends the description by saying, quote, and then into God's damnation, end quote. So, I mean, this is seen as a little bit extreme, even for him, so he's going to say something. Um... And so there are a lot of descriptions like that, and I think what he's getting at is this idea of talking about, you know, these are great places, they have great economies, a lot of skill in technical matters, maybe very efficient government, but we always have to remember they don't have the true religion, and so they're doing some really weird stuff, as it seems to his readers, and such to the extent that he said, you know, they're, they're going into damnation from it, to, to remind them that we're the ones who have the truth. And we hear this a lot, and, you know, in any kind of description of another culture, we often get this, and talk about all the wonderful things they do, and so forth, or, you know, this other culture, that, you know, they have the technology, we need their technology and their science, but, you know, we have to keep our you know, our, our original culture. Well, I mean, these are just some of the many accounts that we find in this book, the accounts of China and India. There is a whole lot more information than I, we haven't mentioned. I mean, it's all sorts packed with some interesting information. And we haven't talked about Sri Lanka, which is a place that he gives a lot of um, just amazing stories. It's said that gamblers there 
uh, they sit with a bowl of boiling oil and an axe next to them because the loser, and they gamble on backgammon, so the loser of the game has to cut off a finger and they use the boiling oil to cauterize the wound. You know, so that's a pretty high stakes game there. I mean, I don't know what you want to do with the finger if you win it, but that's what they talk about. But anyway, it's packed with stories like this, and it's it's a fascinating account of how the Abbasid Empire at the time saw the rest of the world. Remember, you know, for, for much of history, these, these are places that were exotic, that were shrouded in the mists. So there's still this, this air of uh, exoticism about them. But also, they're, they're seen as being very efficient, having good political, economic, uh, legal systems, and so forth. And this shows the, the idea that globalization is really spreading, but we still, you know, our, our culture is still the best. But it is definitely the account of an empire that saw itself, you know, at the top of the world, at the center of this world empire. There were all sorts of good things out there, but the best was still at home. And in that sense, this is a valuable account, not only of what was going on in China and India, but more so um, the way things were seen from the Abbasid Empire. And so that, in brief, is the accounts of Asarafi of China and India. We thank you for your, your kind attention. Uh, and we thank you for staying with us. Thank you for your comments. Please comment on our Facebook page and like us on there if you have not. And we look forward to seeing you again in the future for our next episode. So shukran jazilan wa ma salama.